again. Take your Bible and find two passages of Scripture, Luke chapter 23 and Matthew chapter 27. The verses are there on the board. Luke 23 and Matthew chapter 27. Today we conclude our series entitled The Cross and the Crown as we've looked at just a few of the events leading up to and including Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. We've seen Jesus betrayed, denied, and condemned, then crucified, then risen, and last week, though, we saw his resurrection was doubted, but we conclude today by seeing that Jesus was believed and believed by all people in the gospel accounts by a criminal being crucified right next to him. So let's read these verses in this order. I know Luke is after Matthew, but that's the way I'm going to... I want you to end in Matthew as we go through this passage. So Luke chapter 23, uh, beginning in verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32. It says, Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Now drop down to verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then in Matthew chapter 27, verse 20, or 41, it says, In the same way the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others? He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel? Well, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So we start with the backstory of this man commonly known as the thief on the cross, and that is an unfortunate designation. The only place that I could find that he's called a thief is in the King James Version of Mark chapter 15, verse 27. I call it unfortunate because these two men were far more than thieves. Most translations call them robbers or criminals. Others called them rebels or revolutionaries. They were such flagrant criminals that Rome crucified them. Rome crucified people to make an example out of them. They wanted to communicate that crime would not be tolerated and to intimidate the populace into conforming to Roman rule. So these men weren't crucified for being Boy Scouts. One uh, writer said that the word translated as robbers is the plural form of the word used to describe Barabbas in John chapter 18. That means violence was likely involved in their crimes. Barabbas was a violent insurrectionist. So to call him a thief really isn't accurate. Plus, thief, uh, theft means the victim is absent. Robbery involves force, or at least the threat of force. So we're not dealing with everyday pickpockets here. 
Yet we see one of these criminals repent and come to Jesus, and he is a textbook example of how to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How does a person believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Number one, you repent sincerely. Now the story starts badly. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 42, it says the chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked Jesus. And here's what they said. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. And verse 44 there says the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is hardcore hatred by these robbers. Imagine this. You're nailed to a cross. You have to push yourself up on the nails on your hands and feet to get enough air in your diaphragm to speak. And you use all that effort to revile Jesus. You don't even know him. And he has nothing to do with you being crucified. Now this demonstrates the hatred the world has for Jesus. But then something happened. And as I studied for this, I came across a lot of speculation as to how the robber came to repentance. I think I had about seven commentaries lined up, and they all had a different theory. There are no verses that tell us exactly what started it, but somewhere along the line, he began to repent. The good news of the gospel starts with the word repent. Matthew chapter 3 introduces us to John the Baptist. His first public statement, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark chapter 1 introduces us to Jesus. His first public statement in that gospel, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The word gospel means good news, but good news cannot be received without repentance. So repentance primarily involves two actions. Number one, you fear God. Look at Luke 23. Luke chapter 23. In verse 35 there, the robbers hear Jesus being mocked as the Christ of God, which is the Messiah, his chosen one, which is the Messiah, and verse 37, the king of the Jews, which technically is a designation for the Messiah. It's right after that that the robber be demonstrates change. Here's the insults hurled toward this man hanging next to him, and maybe it dawned on him that some of these insults actually contain truth. And not much time could have passed before he rebuked the other robber for doing what he had been doing, which was reviling Jesus. In verse 40, he said, Do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? These robbers were undoubtedly Jewish. He would have known at least some of the story of the coming Messiah. And he also realizes that very quickly he's going to give an account to the almighty God of the universe. And he begins to fear God. So what does repentance look like? Well, it involves the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8.13 says the fear of the Lord will cause one to hate evil. Repentance is turning away from evil. There's a quote I've seen attributed to several different men. It's, I don't know who it's original with, but it's very helpful here. Repentance means you turn with as much as you know of yourself, from as much as you know of your sin, to as much as you know of God. 
You're motivated to do that by the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 16 says the fear of the Lord prompts one to depart from evil. So repentance involves the fear of the Lord, but it also means that you bow to his lordship. And this is a key point. Look at verse 42. The robber said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He actually believed that a crucified man had a coming kingdom. Many today believe that salvation is just the granting of eternal life. But salvation is the liberation of a sinner from the bondage of sin. Friends, any conversion that does not change a lifestyle of sin and transform the human heart is not a conversion. Jesus is Lord over all, and that includes the sin that enslaves us. Now, I don't hear as much about the debate about lordship salvation as I used to, but still you hear it sometimes. And that means, well, I'll take Jesus as Savior, but I won't take him as Lord. Well, Lord means master or ruler. A person can't be saved unless they believe Jesus is Lord. If Jesus isn't Lord, then who is? If Jesus isn't Lord, that means someone in the universe is higher than him, and I think many see themselves as that person. <laughs> to believe that you and I have more of a right to dictate our lives than Jesus is folly, evil, and rebellion. Belief in Jesus as Lord is necessary for salvation. For example, Jesus said, you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom. I've never seen a child who believes Jesus, but doubts that Jesus is the ruler over everything. Remember the angelic proclamation we enjoy at Christmas. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And sometimes you will hear someone make this statement, well, make Jesus the Lord of your life. God never asked us to make Jesus Lord. God has already made Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord whether a human being makes him Lord or not. It's just a matter of whether or not you surrender to his Lordship for salvation. And what does that mean? Well, to come to Jesus as Lord for salvation, first of all, you recognize that he's Lord, and you surrender your beliefs, thoughts, and practices, your mind, heart, and will to Jesus, and he will save you. Now, an analogy is helpful here. Pretend you're a pastor. You're in my shoes and Nathan's shoes and, and Kirk's. Kirk, have you, I think he's here. Have you ever done a wedding? We need to get you to do that. Anybody getting married soon? There. So you're performing a wedding, and you're doing the vows. Uh, let's see, the, the, the bride always stands here. I have to stop and think about that. All right. Billy, do you take Sally to be your wife? By the way, I can't say lawfully wedded wife any longer with a good conscience. So, Billy, do you take Sally to be your wife? Well... That's a pretty big commitment. I don't know. I'm, I'll take her as housekeeper and the mother of my kids. Somebody thinks it's funny. She, she may be my wife, but... Sally, do you take Billy to be your husband? Well, I've read Ephesians chapter 5. I don't know about that. I'll take his paycheck. 
On that basis, there would be no marriage. It's the same with Jesus. To take Him for what you want and leave the rest means you are still in the bondage of sin. Jesus is Lord over all, or He's not Lord at all. But do not confuse salvation with sanctification. Sanctification is different. It's also called sometimes progressive sanctification. It means you progressively grow in your walk with Jesus. It means He practically becomes Lord more and more as you grow in Him. You understand more in what is involved in fully living for Him. So you grow deeper in obedience, broader in faith, hope, and love, bolder in prayer and witness. The robber never had a chance to experience sanctification but he did experience salvation. How so? He believed Jesus was a king with a kingdom. He believed this king would allow others to share in that kingdom, and he desired to have a part in it, but he didn't come as if he deserved it. He didn't say, Lord, let me sit at your right hand in your kingdom, or Lord, give me authority over several cities, but he did say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that leads us straight to the second point. Not only repent sincerely, but ask humbly. Verse 42 is as simple as it gets. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't ask for deliverance or healing. He didn't say, Lord, get me off this cross. He went straight to the most significant matter any person will face, and that is eternity. And he asked Jesus to be part of his kingdom. He believed in an afterlife. Now, in the past 10 years or so, I've tried to be very careful to stay away from the phrase, pray to accept Jesus. And I'm not trying to pick on anyone's nomenclature. That statement comes from way back, and some of you may use that statement. I'm, I'm not trying to pick, pick nits here. But I've been very careful to stay away from that statement because that was part of what was known as the sinner's prayer that was so grossly abused and misused. Just pray to accept Jesus, and you're a forever saved child of God. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle ends up being. As long as you prayed that prayer, heaven is yours. Friend, please hear me. If that's what you're trusting to get you to heaven, you might as well trust in a magic carpet ride to get you there. But it is true that Jesus will respond to a simple, humble prayer for salvation. Romans chapter 10 says, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call, a verbal component. Call, it sounds an awful lot like asking or praying. And that's part of my testimony. I didn't want to give in to, didn't want to give up my sin. I didn't want to bow before Jesus as Lord. And when it finally happened, it was like a dam breaking. And I said, Lord, save me. I don't, I don't remember exactly what I said. But I know I was just a, a mess. I was surrendering to his lordship, and I was crying out. I was calling on the name of the Lord. Always remember something. Jesus did not come into this world to keep people out of heaven. He came into this world so people could go to heaven. So ask humbly, and as you ask, you repudiate all self-righteousness. Verse 41, he tells the other robber, we are suffering justly. He confesses that he deserves what he's receiving. He makes no claim to Jesus that he deserves anything. He simply confesses, this is what I did. A sincere 
believe that we deserve God's wrath will eliminate self-righteousness. And I want you to notice something else here. Notice that he contrasts his lack of righteousness with Jesus' perfect righteousness. Who knew this robber had wonderful theology? Verse 41, he very accurately said, this man has done nothing wrong. <laughs> the sinless life of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the lost world misuses this story in a way that demonstrates self-righteousness. Let me give you some examples. Well, you don't need to go to church to go to heaven. True. But the thief couldn't go to church. Well, you don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. True. But if you're nailed to a tree, I mean, we'll give you a pass on that. But if you're not willing to be baptized, go back to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, you don't need to engage in good works to go to heaven. True. Salvation is by grace. But any conversion that doesn't lead to good works in Jesus' name is not a conversion. James even said faith without works is dead. Myth number four. I can wait until the last second to be saved. I'll, I'll live my life the way I want, and then when I get older and get near that time, I'll believe on Jesus. Well, true. But do you really believe you can time that just right? And if last-second repentance is all that's in a person's heart, realize that a lifetime of rebellion doesn't come to a screeching halt at the last second. Now, on the other hand, this gives us hope for our loved ones who have not made any clear commitment to Jesus. But deathbed conversions are unlikely. Because by that time, the heart is hardened, the conscience is seared, and the mind is dulled. This is the only deathbed conversion in the Bible, and it has been so well said, there is one that no one may despair, but only one so that no one will presume. So we repudiate self-righteousness, and we reject works righteousness. Again, verse 41, we are suffering justly. He doesn't come to Jesus. Well, he couldn't come. He was on the cross. But he doesn't say to him, and you know, I admit I've done some bad stuff. But I'm really a good person. I try hard to help people and, and bless others. And no one is perfect. So when you come into your kingdom, would you remember the good things I've done? Now he faced the facts. He sinned against others. He sinned against God and nailed to a cross. There is no good work he can do. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But your lifestyle will give you a good indication if you're saved or not. You could call it a leading indicator. But good behavior, great lifestyle does not save you eternal life is not a prize you achieve it is a gift you receive unfortunately works righteousness is probably the most persistent myth in humanity it will never die because it comes from human pride so here's a question why do our good works not merit salvation before god I mean, some people do some really good things. Why doesn't that count? The reason is that the standard of God is perfection. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Definitions matter. So what does perfect mean? Perfection is described as obedience to the law. And James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, one time you took God's name in vain, one time you looked lustfully, one time you stole something, one point you become guilty of all. So if a person relies on works for salvation, they're actually described in the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, the dead were judged according to the works. And that's what the world wants, right? I'm a good person. Judge me on that basis. The problem is that our works, our so-called good life, are laid alongside God's perfection. And the Bible calls them filthy rags compared to God's holiness. That doesn't even include our evil works. So at death, the works of those relying on works to save them will, have, will find that those works have one purpose. They will determine the degree of punishment a person endures in hell. So we repent sincerely, we ask humbly, and we trust fully. And the first step to trusting Him is to exercise faith in Him. The robber fully trusts his future to a Jewish peasant dying on a cross. That's tremendous faith. And verse 43, Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Question, what did the robber have to assure him that Jesus' words were true? The very same thing that we have. His word. Faith is taking him at his word. Never be confused about this word. Every word of this Bible is inspired by God, it is inerrant, and it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. If you have a red-letter Bible, meaning the ones that has the words of Jesus in red, realize those red letters on a white page are no more or less inspired than the black letters on a white page. Every word of the Bible is equally true, equally inspired, and equally God's Word. Our limited humanity means we won't understand it all, but we've not been instructed to understand it all. We're told to walk by faith, not by sight. So exercise faith in Him, and then openly confess Him. There was no church revival designed to bring anybody to Jesus. There was no pleading from the pulpit about death and eternity. What existed for this robber was a mocking, jeering crowd, and while in excruciating pain with no one to encourage him, he confessed Jesus publicly, confessed him as Lord. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says to be saved, part of it is to confess Jesus as Lord. Once you are saved, you are to confess him to others. That first confession is the essence of baptism. It's publicly declaring your faith in Jesus. Now, I'm no expert on baptism, but in the history of Bible-believing churches, I know that uh, baptism often put a target on your back, still does in parts of the world today. And many times it was done in a, 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 a town where it was near a body of a, a river or a body of water, and so the church would go across town to that body of water and baptize you there. That meant other people knew you were being baptized into that church, and that could lead to persecution. And sometimes in the history of the church, the persecution comes from a very surprising source, other believers. 
Now, you've heard of the Protestant Reformation. Two well-known names in that were John Calvin and Martin Luther. One who was not, not as well-known but was very influential was named Ulrich Zwingli. I don't expect any of you naming your kids that way, but Ulrich Zwingli. The Reformers sought to break from the practices, the errant practices of the Catholic Church, but it, it wasn't a clean break, and history never works that way. And, and men are fallible. We're all fallible. So these three men, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just trying to illustrate something. These three men and many others opposed a group that came about in the 1500s called the Anabaptist, A-N-A, -A, and then the word Baptist. The Anabaptists believed in biblical baptism, that is, by immersion after salvation. It was for those who could make their own decision when it came to saving faith. Well, Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli all believed in infant baptism. Calvin called the Anabaptists fanatics and said infant baptism had been observed since the time of the apostles. And Luther, of course, is credited by justification by faith alone, yet he also believed that a baptism could create faith in an infant. Now, I'm not trying to criticize them. Remember, we're all fallible. But here come the Anabaptists, and they're preaching biblical baptism. They were persecuted by almost everyone. It wasn't only because of their beliefs about baptism, but that was the most significant reason. So when I say persecuted, I mean persecuted. The Catholic Church drowned them. So did Zwingli. King Ferdinand of Spain called the Anabaptists, called for the Anabaptists to have a third baptism, drowned them. And many other reformers were openly hostile to them. It, it resulted in many of them moving west and many years later moving to America. Now, why do I say all this? Because openly confessing Jesus by words and even by baptism can bring opposition and persecution. There are times that I've had the privilege of baptizing someone, but we've kind of put it off for a little bit because there are family members that are going to be extremely angry if they get baptized. But we're called to openly confess Him. So if you've never been baptized by immersion after salvation, then talk to Nathan or myself or Kirk. We want to baptize you, and there's an urgency to it. So please let us know. Because we want to repent sincerely, ask humbly, trust fully. Now that's how you're saved. And when you're saved, I want you to see this. When you're saved, you can rest securely. Rest securely. When you are saved, the devil will attack you. I mean, I can't find anything in Scripture that says this, but when a, first, a person first comes to Jesus, it's just like the onslaught comes. And I know I experienced that myself. So the devil will attack you, the world will revile you, and trouble will befall you. So I want you to see that Jesus will keep you when life is painful. Look at the order of events in verse 43. Jesus said, now, just put yourself in the, in, the, in the shoes, so to speak, of the robber on the cross. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44 says that happened at the sixth hour. Then came three hours of darkness. You've just trusted Jesus as a king with a kingdom. You said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then you and Jesus are engulfed in complete darkness for three hours. 
And then you hear the one in whom you believe has a kingdom cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? What should you believe now? There will be times when it looks like you should just give up your beliefs. Or at least moderate them to accommodate the spirit of the age. Or maybe you have great and troubling questions that aren't answered in this life. My dear friends, please hear me. Never, never surrender what you know to be true. Never. You trusted Jesus in the light. Nothing changes in the darkness. He will sustain you when life is painful. He will sustain you when consequences are unbearable. Our sin nailed Jesus to a cross, but the robber's sin nailed the robber to a cross. So as a Christian, our sins are forgiven, but sometimes the consequences of what we've done in life, they are very unforgiving. Trusting Jesus didn't make the pain of crucifixion go away. And I can't imagine the physical pain of crucifixion, the searing, the tearing, the excruciating pain. No hope of relief. You just want death to hasten. So when the consequences of past sins seem to just continually reverberate, remember that not only are your sins forgiven, he's still, you are still his child and he is not rejecting you. So he'll sustain you when life is painful, when consequences are unbearable, and when death is imminent. We're not told when the, the robber died, but no one prayed for him. There was no funeral. No one took down his body from a cross and put it in a borrowed tomb. But he joined Jesus in paradise. So death comes. When that time of death comes, he will bring you through that valley of the shadow of death. And he will bring you safely to where you really belong, and that is with him. But I want to ask every single one of you, how well prepared are you for that moment? If you're a Christian, at the end, all that's going to matter is that you lived your life for him. If you're not a Christian, the only reason you're not a Christian is pride. You may have heard many gospel appeals Many times in your life, the robber never heard one. Yet his, folks, his testimony accuses you this morning if you're not saved. Why linger in unbelief when death may be on the doorstep? You know, earlier I talked about the use and abuse of what was called the sinner's prayer. I believe on that basis that many Americans have made false professions of faith. And you may have seen some of the surveys that George Barna has done and other groups have done that uh, they ask people, are you a born-again Christian? And they ask them simple, basic uh, questions and that they fail every one of them. They demonstrate themselves to really be, have pagan beliefs. So how can you know if your salvation is real? How can you know that you know Jesus? And it's really simple. You fear God. Not perfectly, but you fear God. You bow to His Lordship, and that's reflected in your lifestyle. You reject self-righteousness. You don't believe there's any self-righteousness in you. You reject works righteousness that you can't earn your way to heaven. And you're exercising faith in Him. You're here today. You exercise faith in Him, and you openly confess Him. It's really simple. 
If you've never been saved, then remember Jesus didn't come to take, keep you out of heaven. He came to bring you in. So that's the invitation to you today is to turn away from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to paraphrase something Charles Spurgeon said and then we'll be done. <laughs> this is a great line. He said, the robber ate breakfast with the devil and ate supper with Jesus in paradise. If you've never been a Christian, and you can change that this morning. And if you are a Christian, hang on to that line. You ate breakfast with the devil, but someday you're going to eat supper with Jesus in paradise. Let's pray.